following sermon was preached on June 27, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled Beware Covetousness on 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Our text is 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. We have food and covering. With these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Most of us have seen this, and you children of all have done it. But you see these two six-month-old playing on the floor together. One's very happy over here by himself with his little toys he's playing with. And the friend who's at the house is over here and picks up a toy that belongs to the first child. What does the first child do? He quickly crawls over there and grabs the toy for himself. I've always said when children begin to do that, I know that's when I begin to spank them. Not hard, of course, but anyway, because they're they're manifesting uh, the basic problem of our sin nature, which is lust. Lust and greed. That's mine. And you can't touch it. Now, you see, this is a problem with all of us. I said it's ingrained in us. It is one of the basest parts of our sin nature. Uh, The matter of covetousness is addressed in both Testaments time and time again. Now, Paul's writing to Timothy, and this problem of covetousness is, is particularly, if you look at Scripture, a ministerial problem. Now, you just think of some of the examples of, of Balaam, Simon uh, the magician, uh, Demas, uh, all uh, churchmen who um, turned away from the faith because of greed and covetousness. And if you stop and think about it, uh, you can see why that can be a, a particular besetting sin for ministers. Oftentimes, it's changed a lot, but oftentimes they're very underpaid. Other professionals that have the same amount of education are much more highly esteemed and better paid. Again, it's changing, but oftentimes the minister lives in somebody else's house. The minister has hand-me-down furniture. I'll always remember the time that we just had our second child, and a dear lady in the church had put in the manse one of her beds, and her daughter had gotten married, and she needed it. And so she comes and takes away the borrowed furniture. That's what ministers had to put up with. Um, We often are with older people in the congregation. People have some kind of estate, and there's that temptation to ingratiate ourselves into them uh, in order perhaps they'll share something with us. That's why Paul so often warns or, or, or claims for himself he does not adultery, he does not prostitute the gospel. He says to one congregation, uh, I, I seek you and not yours. But it is a problem. 
And so as Paul writes Timothy, remember this last section now, with 1 Timothy 6.3 to the end of the chapters, particularly addressed to Timothy. But as I've said, we all recognize this, right? Not one of us sits here today who does not have this problem with discontent, greed, and covetousness. And so everything he says is, is by the Spirit designed uh, for us. So he, he begins, in, as we saw last week, warning against false teachers. He, he contrasts their teaching with true orthodoxy, which is of Christ and promotes godliness. He describes their character, uh, and he describes the consequences of their teaching. And, and thus our Savior reminds us that, that we judge teachers and their doctrine by what it produces. Now last week, I omitted one part of their character at the end of verse 5. They were of, of a depraved mind, and they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And there Paul is getting to the motivation factor of false teaching. It is for gain. It is for profit. It is to advance himself financially, materially, uh, in terms of power, in terms of reputation. So our text actually, as you see, begins with the word but, and now Paul is making a contrast with that which... Uh, uh, he has said about the false uh, teachers. And here he says, since God provides uh, for all of our needs and covetousness is dangerous, the believer must cultivate contentment. Since God provides for all of our needs and covetousness is dangerous, the believer must cultivate all our needs. He lays out a principle in verse 6 where he speaks to us there of the importance of contentment. In verses uh, uh, 7 and 8, he speaks of the basis of contentment, which is the first argument to enforce the principle. And then in 9 and 10, the dangers of discontent, which is covetousness and lust. So in verse 6, Paul lays down a principle. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And here he shows us the importance of contentment in our, our living, our lifestyle, our affections. Now, he's showing that you don't throw out the baby with the wash, to borrow a popular idiom or a proverb. Um, they have said that godliness is for great gain. And Paul says, yeah. There's a great element of truth to that. He actually makes a play on words that, um, if you just think about it for a moment, because they say godliness is a means of gain, and the footnote in the New American Standard will say religion, because the word can be understood in that way. Paul, then, with the play on words, yes, godliness is a means of great gain. So even though they are abusing uh, the doctrines of Scripture, their own role in order to uh, line their pockets and to get financial and material gain or fame or whatever, uh, Paul says, it's true. That's the principle. It's true that godliness is a means of great gain. Notice he has that word great. That, uh, yes, uh, God delights in taking care of his people. We're not disembodied souls. We're made as whole people, body and soul, in the image of God. And the Bible from beginning to end wants you to understand that God cares about you as a person. And not just as a spiritual entity, as a person. This is driven home, ought to be driven home, 
in funerals. I, I helped do a funeral yesterday, and, and you know, people will say, well, that's not Joe. But that is Joe that's there in the grave. It's one part of Joe. Joe's going to be incomplete until the resurrection. That's why we bury and don't cremate. And our catechism says that even though the soul is glorified in the presence of God, the body remains in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. God has redeemed us as whole people. And that's the basis now of Paul's saying, yes, godliness, conformity to the image of Christ, is of great gain. Well, in the first place, the Bible teaches that God does take care of our physical needs. He does feed us and, and clothe us. Paul will come back and, and we'll emphasize that uh, later in our text. And God's concerned about these things. You know, he said in 4.8, Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is, and that which is to come. God takes care of us. We read in Psalm 37, 25, I've been young and now I'm old, and yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. That's a pattern, you see, that uh, the saint, the righteous one, that God provides for him. Now, if the righteous one behaves unrighteously, foolishly, makes wicked decisions, he might find himself destitute. But the pattern is that the righteous are cared for by God and they don't become beggars. And when in God's providence something happens to a family or the breadwinner, God in the church provides in through the deacons. It's one of the important parts of the ministry of deacons. We've dealt with this a, a few weeks ago, that... Uh, we care for the widow and the indigent amongst us through the church, through the deacons uh, in ministry in the church. So God does take care of you. He wants you to believe that. We're going to come back to that. But oftentimes, it's even more than that. God often will bless the righteous with more than a modicum, more than kind of the average needs or necessities of life. And the scripture is very clear about that. That uh, God, by His Spirit, will bless. He blesses those who tithe. And His promise is attached to that, of how God will bless them abundantly. It's not always at the same level, but it is something that we know happens. And of course, it grows out of the gospel. I think I've said this to you before. But this uh, person is converted or comes through the covenant, lives by godly means, keeps the law of God is a faithful worker, has an ethic, saves. Oftentimes, those are the things the Spirit uses to move us along in, in our material development. I'm sure that uh, Pastor Harold can confirm this, but I had a dear friend when I was in Texas who uh, had a Mexican church on the border, and uh, he said that the pattern was that the first generation that were converted were the, the poorest of the ghettos poor and wretched. And of course, God, Paul reminds us in, in 1 Corinthians that God has chosen the poor and, and the wretched of this world because their state is a very clear uh, illustration of our spiritual state. But then what happened the next generation, as these people were really converted, was their children became then the diligent uh, workers in the community and began to provide for their families. And the third generation like him, were the ministers and the teachers and the lawyers and the physicians 
and the businessmen. And it was clearly a product of the transforming nature of the gospel in their lives. Now, of course, in that is also the great temptation. You know, our possessions become idols. And so what often has happened then is that we must guard our hearts because we're very blessed, is that you begin to, to be blessed the Lord in this way, and you turn these things into idols. The next thing you know, the church is becoming liberal because we've substituted uh, the gifts of God for God. But it's still the way that God operates in his mercy to us. Um, but one of the greatest parts of godliness as a means of great gain is the privilege from God to enjoy the little that you do have. Again, in Psalm 37, what does he say? Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Solomon talks about this a good bit in Ecclesiastes, that it's a gift of God that you can enjoy your wife, your husband, your children, uh, your family, uh, good food, good drink. You can add to that friends and flowers and, and, and all that's around us. We all know the story. They think about, was it Hughes? That he was so paranoid, he, he lived in this deadly fear. All of his wealth couldn't protect him from that fear. And the wealth are always wanting more, like the, the farmer in the parable of Christ. Uh, I'm going to build greater barns and tell my soul, eat, drink, and be merry. And wealth is not enjoyed. You probably have I know your children have experienced that. Children, you get some Christmas presents or birthday presents, and, um, well, why didn't I get that? Or I really want this and you become discontent. You're never quite satisfied with what you do have. And that's simply, we never outgrow that, do we? We never outgrow it. The freedom from God to enjoy what God has given to us. Because it's our inheritance. What you have is yours because you have been adopted by God. We're heirs of the world. John Owen says in his volume 2 on communion with Christ under adoption is that it's only the Christian who can really enjoy anything in this life. It's ours. Not that we are going to steal or take from somebody else, but we enjoy it with impunity. We have a delight. We recognize that the things that God's given to us are part of our inheritance in Christ Jesus. And above all, we have Christ. And that's why uh, the psalmist can say, Prophetically, even better is a little of the righteous in the abundance of many wicked, because if you have Christ, then everything is sweetened by having Christ, isn't it? So the importance of contentment is that God provides for the material needs of the godly. But notice the provision. Now here's the full principle where he adds then to that when accompanied by contentment. So God is providing for you, and it will be gain, but will only be gain when you are content with all the provisions that God has given you. The Greek word for contentment actually comes out of Stoic philosophy, and it means to be self-sufficient. But as the Bible uses it, I would put it this way, it means to be Christ-sufficient, that all things are mine in Christ Jesus, and I can rest in Him alone. Go back to larger catechism, the duties of the Tenth Commandment. Um, required 
are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as in all our inward motions and affections touching him and tend unto and further all the good which is his. Full contentment with our own condition. That's what Paul's describing here. It's when you recognize that the gain that comes to you because you're in Christ Jesus and growing in righteousness is going to be tempered by a full acceptance of what God has brought into your life every single day with no inordinate affections, as we'll come back to, no desires for that which is not yours. Rejoicing in what is yours, rejoicing in that which is your neighbor's. That is contentment. Paul summarizes it well in Philippians 4, 10-13, which we read. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you revived your concern for me. This is a thank you note. But notice in the midst of the thank you note, he gets this point. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. I had a sermon on this in seminary, and uh, being a poor seminary student, I understood that first part. But my professor said, you know, it's just as hard to be content in prosperity as it is in humble means. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We often pull that verse out, and it's a true principle about all of life. But notice where Paul's applying it. Paul's applying to this matter of contentment. You'll have contentment as you rest in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Which brings us to the second thing, that Paul discusses the basis then of our contentment in the next two verses, 7 and 8. For we brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. He begins uh, by showing us that true blessings... Our true blessings are not measured by our physical estate. Our true blessings are not measured by our bank account, by our popularity, or our fame, or our power. He does so by taking what probably was a proverb, because it's put in the first person plural, uh, the quotation from Job. So Job confessed in the midst of his loss of everything at that point except his health, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was Job's great insight, and Paul evidently had become a proverb, so he says, we, we have brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. Now what does this have to do with this contentment? that uh, godliness is a means of great gain with contentment. Well, I believe Paul takes us here to show us that life is much more than the physical. Now, it's true, God cares about the whole person. But by this proverb, you've come into the world without anything, and you've left it. But Now, as, as Solomon says in, in Ecclesiastes, the soul goes to God. And the body goes to the dust. 
and there's not a material possession at all that you're going to take with you. Um, that silly saying, you know, who I, I call it life's monopoly. A person who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> nope. Uh, the pharaohs and the rich in Egypt were so stupid to think they could take all their possessions and put them in some great monument and take them with them. Nope. Job teaches us. You come into the world naked, you leave the world naked. But I think what Paul is showing us is that uh, the body dies, but there's something else. What came into this world in the body is your soul. And what was the state of your soul as you come into this world? It was dead in sin. Guilty of Adam's first sin. And corrupt through and through. You never taught a child to lie, did you? Or to have that covetousness and that envy and to show tenter tantrums? As I said, that's their nature. That's our nature. There's no innocent person. There's no non-corrupt person. The only thing that keeps the corruption of society going to full-scale monstrosity is the fact that God, by His Spirit and His law, tampers it. He holds it back. Well, we'd be living in hell right now where He doesn't hold it back. So our souls come into the well corrupt and dead and full of death, and we actually are born to head to hell. But what Paul wants you to understand here is that something more important than your body is your soul, and God's done something about that, hasn't he? Now he directs our attention to the greatest gift of all. And that's how we, we dealt with this righteousness of Christ, and we've sung about it, and we've read about it, we've prayed about it. Because God chose us in eternity in Christ, and gave us Christ in the fullness of time. And he humbled himself into a state of poverty, obeyed the law of God perfectly, and then had heaped upon him all the guilt of the sins of all of those people for whom he died, and satisfied the wrath and justice of God, so that as we are brought into union with him by the Holy Spirit through faith, God has provided the greatest thing. God provided for our souls. God has given us eternal life. Remember Timothy 4.8? God is profitable for all things in this life and the life to come. You see, if you get that perspective, you suddenly realize how God indeed is, is caring for you. And this is what our Savior is saying to us in, in Matthew 10. Don't... Uh, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, uh, but fear him who destroys the body and soul in hell. Or in Mark 8, what does it profit a man if he gains whole or loses his soul? So you have a soul. And the basis of contentment is to understand that that's what's important in this life. In fact, it's often our riches, our possession, that hinder us from ever knowing our spiritual need and seeking God. And harden ourselves in our sin. Of a soul. God has redeemed the soul of his elect. How can we not be content? Which brings us in, kind of, he comes back around then and he says, then, because of this, because God has redeemed your soul, if we have food and covering, verse 8, with these we should be content. 
So if God's given you all, everything, this great eternal inheritance, then Paul focuses now, if you've got the basics of life, food and covering, it's uh, both words are in the plural. Foods and coverings. And coverings is more than, than uh, uh, clothing. Some Bibles translate this clothing, but no, it, it's, a, it's a more comprehensive. In other words, it's, it's all the basic necessities of life. Food and shelter and, and uh, uh, care uh, for our physical needs. And he says that God has in Christ abundantly provided for us because he who has provided for our soul surely is going to provide for us here. Again, what the Savior says in, in Matthew 6, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you'll put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you, are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubic to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now, by talking about the Heavenly Father, you see He's talking to you as you're in Christ. He says, your Father, who chose you, redeemed you, justified you, adopted you, He knows what you need. He's going to provide. And there is the ground, the foundation of contentment. Isn't it? He's given you Christ. In Him He freely gives you all things. So Paul develops the principle the godliness uh, is indeed great gain with contentment. And why? As he spells this out, that God has given us the most in Christ and thus provides for everything else. But now he wants to give a second argument uh, for this principle, and that is the danger of discontentment, or what I'm calling the danger of covetousness, because they're synonyms. And that's what we have now in verses 9 and 10, if you look at those words. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The danger of covetousness. Paul says two things. In the first place, covetousness destroys the soul. Destroys the soul. Take the negative part of larger catechism, exposition of the 10th commandment. What's forbidden? The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Discontentment and these inordinate motions and affections. 
And we need to understand that when Paul says here that um, those who want to get rich fall into temptation, that he's not condemning wealth. I told you, God's not a socialist. Uh, we all don't live on the same standard, but God is not opposed to the wealth. It's a dangerous place to be because of the temptations that accompany it. But uh, God does bless with wealth, and throughout Scripture and church history, uh, there have been uh, phenomenal people who were wealthy and used their wealth for, uh, for the glory of God. I always love to tell the fundamentalists that um, Guinness... Uh, was a Christian in Dublin, Ireland, and he wanted to invent something to keep the young lads from getting drunk on Saturday night. So he invented Guinness Stout, which you'd have to have the stomach of an elephant, probably, ever to drink enough of it to get drunk. So it became quite popular. Do you know what he did with the proceeds? He financed Muslim evangelism. See, God blessed him. In a couple of ways, as enterprise, but he used that money for the glory of God. So wealth is not wrong in itself. Nor is it wrong to, uh, in fact, it's proper to have financial goals and, and to plan for the future. And, and Solomon says that it's, it's a blessing when you have an inheritance for your grandchildren. Um, it's not long to seek to further your estate. No, that's not what Paul is speaking against here. He's talking about the inordinate desires and motions. It's not wrong to look at your neighbor's... Dadme tells a story about the minister that sees his neighbor's horse, and he'd like to have that horse. So he offered to buy it. Nothing wrong with wanting that horse. Nothing wrong with wanting a particular thing or, or property or whatever. Uh, what's wrong is, is that when it's not yours, that you then begin to... Um, pout and grieve and complain or do worse, like Ahab. It wasn't wrong that Ahab wanted uh, his neighbor's uh, vineyard. But when the neighbor said no, it was wrong when Ahab then, filled with lust and covetousness, pouted. His wicked wife had the man murdered so he could have the property. The initial, the initial response wasn't wrong. That's not covetousness. It's when God says no, or... Sometimes, because of your inordinate pleading with God for something, you know what He does? He'll give it to you. And He gives it to you as a chastening. That's what the psalmist teaches us when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and uh, they, they wanted meat. They weren't satisfied with manna. And the psalmist says that God gave them desire, their desire and sent with it leanness of soul. That's frightening, you see. Inordinate desires, pleading for, could lead even to leanness of soul when God would grant those desires, not out of His mercy, but of fatherly displeasure to chasten us. And so Paul is showing us here that uh, covetousness will destroy the soul. Understanding that what we're talking about, then look what he says in verse 9. Those who want to get rich, that's their passion desire, it becomes the, the gaudy motivation of their life. It, it's always uh, gain, gain, gain. Whatever it is. So we, Paul's talking about money here because that's the motivation of the false teachers. But uh, uh, whatever it is, sex, power, fame, those who want to get rich, what's going to happen to them? They fall into temptation. 
and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. He shows us here the psychology of sin. He shows us that which James reminds us of, that it all begins with lust. So James will say in James 1, 14 and 15, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's the outline of what Paul is spelling out here for us. Um, that old Flip Wilson thing, the devil made me do it. No, no, the devil didn't make you do it. He may be fed on your lust. Maybe brought the world system to tempt you. But there's enough in each one of us, enough snipers in our hearts with our lust that we don't need the devil. And so what Paul is showing us here, what James says, is that the sin begins in the heart. So when he talks here about the desire for money, he's simply talking, which he often does very concretely, about a spiritual principle which deals with lust. So what does that lust deal, lead to? They fall into temptation. Now, that doesn't mean they're tempted. No, it means they give into the temptation. They say yes. Uh, Owen spells, I mean, uh, Perkins spells it out, the, the thought, the, temp, the, the initial thought, that's not a sin. And then you start wrestling with that. You know, even there, he said that you can tell yourself no, but it's when you begin to consent to it. And that's the falling into temptation. When you give in to the temptation, you commit the sin, motivated by the lust, and then what happens to you? You fall into a snare. Now, two of the times in the Paschal Epistles, the Apostle talks about the snare, and it's always the snare of the devil. 1 Timothy 3.7 and 2 Timothy 2.26. The snare is shorthand here. It's that you sin, you go for the bait, and Satan's got you. When I was a young lad in California, there was a period of time I was raising pigeons. You kids should try this. We don't have many pigeons around here, but you can catch squirrels or chipmunks. So I simply took a very simple cardboard box, took a stick with a string on it, and put some corn under the box and got way back. When a pigeon went in there to eat the corn, I pulled the string, and I captured a pigeon. That's the simple idea of a snare, as Paul in the Bible uses that language. It's a trap, a baited trap, to capture you. And so Paul is saying that when you give in to your lust, you sin, Satan pulls a string, trap comes down, he's got you. You're in his control. That then leads to spiritual death. A snare with many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. In that snare, you lose your senses. You become irrational. A tumble in the bed is, is, is better than your reputation, your family, your wife, and everything else. Or to cheat on your taxes, or to do this or that, is surely preferable so I can have these financial things that I want. Or to prostrate the gospel and to compromise. Um, foolish desires. Solomon so often contrasts, doesn't he? The way of the fool which leads to destruction. 
The way of the wise man, shaped by the fear of God and the word of God, always leads to life. And then harmful desires. You see, and we'll come to this more uh, in, the, in verse 10, but um, lust breeds lust. It always does. Lust is like a California wildfire. We, we lived out there. Actually, a, a fire could send a spark and start a second fire a mile away. That's what lust do. Because it's never going to be one lust. You give in to one lust, it's something going to breed other lust. And all these other harmful desires begin to grow up in you. And that plunges men. The word means to drown them, to drive them under. Uh, plunges them into ruin and destruction. Here's the destruction of the soul. The words actually are synonyms. But as Paul heaps them together in this manner, I believe he wants us to focus on both the physical danger and the spiritual danger. The temporal judgment and the eternal judgment. For we will not sin and escape. Sometimes the wicked escape judgment in this life, but they will never escape judgment. And as we, as we read in Psalm 37, I looked, their place was gone. Their place was gone. No one remembers them. They've been judged by God. And uh, that's what's going to happen. That's what covetousness does. You understand? That's what your lusts do. Unfettered lust, unbridled lust will always lead to spiritual destruction, destruction of the soul. Now Paul delves more deeply in verse 10. And he actually says it leads to apostasy. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, the love of money, uh, Paul, again, is talking about lust. He's taking this particular thing, again, because of the context. The false teachers wanted money. And uh, he's simply showing that uh, lust doesn't lead just to other lusts. Lust leads to all manner of sins. It's not the root of all evil. And that's why the New Ring Standard is correct, the way that the verse is laid out to say all sorts of evil. But what that is showing us in is that if you break the Tenth Commandment, now it's, it's very interesting because the Tenth Commandment really is the bookend. It's just another expression against idolatry. And every one of the Ten Commandments will be a violation, if you break them, is a violation of the Tenth Commandment. Just give you a simple episode. Just take the first four laws. That if you've got covetousness, you've got these inordinate desires, and you've got idols in your life, and you are an idolater. If you are following lust, then you are not going to be governed by the Word of God exclusively. You're breaking the second commandment. If you're hungering after covetousness, discontentment, then uh, your Christian testimony is going to be compromised and your prayers are going to be full of self-seeking. If you are driven by lust and covetousness, you're not resting in Christ. And the Sabbath day, your thoughts are full of the world and your own pleasures and ends and goals. And you break the fourth commandment. You see? This is what Paul is saying when he says that it, it leads to all sorts of evil. Every sin. In fact, I encourage you as you prepare for the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day, is do this exercise. Take a couple of, of sins against which you wrestle and examine them by each one. So, you know, it, it, 
might be Sabbath breaking. It might be um, some form of, of sexual sin and idolatry. Uh, but take your sin and then examine it by every one of the Ten Commandments. Look at the exposition of the Shorter or Larger Catechism and you will see that whatever sin you pursue actually is going to bring you in violation of all the law of God. And that's where Paul's taking us now. He's showing the danger of lust. It breeds sin, which leads in, he says in verse 10, to apostasy. Some, by longing for it, money, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Of course, we mentioned Elisha's servant and, and Simon the magician and, and Demas and Balaam. Well, um, their lust caused them to turn away from the faith, to deny the faith, to apostatize. I have um, many times seen people turn away from the faith, and uh, they always come at it is that with intellectual doubts or, or not believing this thing or that thing. But all you have to do is probe, and almost always, it's sin. It's sin. Underline, you have to get the intellectual doubts about faith to, to justify your sin. You can't really say, I'm going to leave the faith because I want to commit adultery. No, I'll, you know, I really think the Bible is, is, is not true. I think there's other ways to Christ. It happens invariably. And that's what Paul is showing here, is that you give in to lust, suddenly you look for rationalizations, and you'll wander from the faith. You don't want to be governed by God. And so you will disbelieve. Now understand the person who apostatized is not someone who has lost his salvation. He's someone who had a credible profession, walked with us sometimes for a very long period of time, and then departed because they were never converted. John makes that very clear. Example in, in 1 John. And when a person apostatizes, they then pierce themselves. As if they put a sword or a, a, a spear into their own body with many griefs. And I think the first thing he has in mind is the grief of a guilty conscience. It gnaws away. It condemns. Isaiah describes it as uh, uh, the surf on a stormy day. It's up, it's back, it's full of sand and filth. It's in great turmoil. That's the conscience that's pierced with this sense of sin. And the Puritans, when the Bible talks about the worm that eats incessantly, is the conscience in hell. Hell is going to be like a house full of crazy people, severely depressed, with no medication, surrounded by all other hateful and crazy people. Of course, the pangs of, of grief are more. Our catechism speaks to this when it says, um, the misery of that estate when a man fell uh, is that all mankind lost communion with God or under his wrath and curse and made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and the pains of hell forever. Do you see then that the temptation is just, just one little lust that's kind of like uh, Bilbo's ring? Just one little thing. 
and how it begins to grip your whole life. And what you think is, it's just one little one. I can play with that. I can think about him or her or that thing or, or this thing. It's not going to do me any harm. Do you see it's impossible? You can never entertain a lust and not affect yourself gravely spiritually. This is why the Bible calls us to the practice of mortification of the flesh, which is our lust, which means to put it to death. You can never compromise with it. John Owen said, kill lust, or lust will kill you. That's what Paul is showing us here. You must never entertain it. You must not play with it. You must starve it to death. You must deprive it of anything else that stirs it up. Time, people, place, whatever it is. And above all, you pray every day that the Spirit will take the very nails of the cross of Christ and drive them into your lust that you'll not be pierced with the griefs of conscience and destruction. <laughs> and so Paul sets before us the importance of contentment, the danger of lust, so that we will seek to cultivate contentment. <coughs> and you must do so. As I said, we all have got the sinful nature. We've all got this remnant of lust and covetousness and discontent. It might be with small things, <coughs> big things. But there's no innocent lust. That's what I want you to understand. And so, don't make way. Seek contentment in Christ by resting in Him, by resting in the glory of the gospel. Seek to cultivate it in yourself. Seek to cultivate contentment in your children and keep Christ before them. Constantly keep in mind that great statement of Paul in the end of Romans 8 that God did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will we not also with Him freely give us all things? All things. He's giving you Christ. What will He keep from you? So you can be like Habakkuk or, or, or the psalmist uh, as they wrestle with the, the particular uh, situation uh, uh, in their lives and they come to the subtleness. And so Habakkuk would write, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold. You know, these agricultural societies lost everything. There be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he's made my feet like kind's feet. He makes me walk on my high places. You rest you rest in Christ. And God gives you contentment. But perhaps as I've spoken this morning about contentment, the lack of it, and covetousness, maybe you'll find yourself like the Apostle Paul. You came through the doors thinking you were a righteous person. But as I've feebly sought to describe to you something of the nature of lust and covetousness, you realized how wicked you are. That's good. That's good. Because if you know how wicked you are, then you know that there's a righteousness outside of you that's in Christ. Let your lust this day, let your self-righteousness and your discontent and your covetousness and lust cause you to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Take hold of Him. 
so that you will not walk away from the faith and pierce yourself through with great griefs. Thanks, Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.